Welcome to Schools of Thought, a podcast by Ed Essentials. In episode 26, we have my very good friend Tristan Bernhard to discuss what the president's priorities for education will be during their term. Now, when we recorded this podcast, we did not know who the Secretary of Education's selection would be. But since then, President Biden has now nominated Dr. Miguel Cardona. Dr. Cardona currently serves as the Education Commissioner of Connecticut and has well-versed experiences as a teacher, principal, and assistant superintendent, all which took place in the public education system. Honestly, I think this selection is a no-brainer. Cardona deeply understands the current disparities within public education, and all points lead to him being ready to lead the education system through the rest of this pandemic. It's also an important selection as Biden hopes to make his cabinet the most, quote, diverse cabinet in U.S. history. Cardona is the third Latino candidate Biden has nominated for a cabinet position, which only reiterates the importance of representation within these top leadership roles in our country. With all that being said, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to Schools of Thought. And without further ado, here is my good friend, Tristan Bernard. Tristan, I'm so excited to talk to you today, man. Uh, it's been too long. Tristan, how's, been, how's the classroom been? It's your first year. I, well, I adore the classroom. I'm in it right now. So if the audio quality isn't up to snuff, um, I don't know if I'll quite apologize for it, but it is what it is. Um, the classroom has been great. Unfortunately, I have been the only one in it uh, as a consequence of, you know, the continued uh, virus situation we're in. I teach in an incredibly population dense district here in Columbus, Ohio. So even more so than maybe other pockets of the country, um, virtual learning has been a necessity. So really, really hoping to get more of the, you know, the personal relationship piece uh, with students as we move back in person. Um, but that said, we've been making do virtual um, and been pretty proud of the work we've been able to do uh, in government and psych class so far this year. Right. Pretty exciting stuff, Hunter. Dude, that's awesome. Um, well, and especially as a first year teacher, I mean, just being thrown into this and you having the, the capacity to focus on those relationships is so important. And, you know, once we do return, you know, in person, you know, hopefully soon, I mean, that all depends on sort of how this administration handles it. And I know that's why I brought you on today. Um, you are my sort of go-to person. You're a political extraordinaire. Um, you're just, (laughs) is that, is that too much of a compliment? Yeah, that's too high. Okay. (laughs) Like three, three pegs down. All right. I'll, I'll bump that down a little bit. But anyways, you know a lot more about politics than I do. Um, you follow it super closely um, and you're just generally passionate about it. And so I really want to talk to you about the impact that the new administration um, of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris could really have on education. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it really hadn't been a big focus for you know the campaigns really. I mean, even just these past four years, education seems to have just fallen by the wayside. And we've kind of thrown a lot of our problems, you know, towards Secretary DeVos and all of her stuff. Um, But even as those campaigns were going, it never really seemed like education took the forefront. I mean, I think it just got swallowed up by COVID. You know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that there was a lot of issues that were really salient for voters uh, these last few years. Obviously, the two candidates, very stark uh, differences in their visions for the country. Um, 
So you can kind of point to that and a host of other issues that really swallowed up the space. Uh, COVID was certainly um, probably tops with that. And then, you know, probably issues of racial reckoning uh, yep. and inequality also obviously had a huge moment in the run up to the election there. Um, and there's probably not, uh, and I'd love to see more research on this, but at least as far as I'm aware, there's not a ton of single issue voters on education. So in a close presidential election like that, maybe um, you don't see as much of that. Um, that said, something that we had talked about in a previous podcast, Hunter, was you know, I was kind of surprised by the lack of conversation in the general populace about kind of how ambitious of an education plan the, uh, the Biden admin was proposing uh, in the run-up to the election. And so um, now uh, post-election, <laughs> hopefully we can, uh, we can get to that point, right. um, but post-election, uh, it's interesting to think about, okay, so now that we kind of have a chessboard in front of us, one that will you know, maybe change a little bit with what happens in Georgia, but we can kind of at least see the vision of what maybe the next two years of governing looks like. What does that broad and kind of bold, ambitious uh, kind of plan look like in the reality of a pretty tight Congress? Uh, so it'll be interesting to dive into that as we get going here. But in general, it's just kind of exciting times, I think, to be in education and, and be interested in the formation of education policy, because we're going to see, I think, a whole lot of movement on the ground, or at least attempted movement mm-hmm. here in the next couple of years. Right. And I think keyword is attempted, because I truly think... Like, like you said, his platform for education is pretty hefty. And so being able to achieve some of those things is going to be tough, especially depending on how some of these final um, races kind of fall uh, and whether or not he's going to be able to have full support in both the House and the Senate. And so, you know, first of all, Tristan, kind of give us a general overview of what are some of those major priorities that the Biden administration has campaigned on? And what are some of the things that you think that they're really going to try and follow through on? as they take over this administration. Yeah, and there'll certainly be activists that are, are gonna look to hold the Biden administration you know, to the flames, so to speak, in the, the kind of promises they've made. But what we mean when we say that it's been a pretty ambitious uh, you know, plan is that uh, these, these haven't been platitudes, right? You can pull any politician in the, the country aside and say, you know, what do you wanna do? And they'll say, we're gonna make it so that you know, your, your zip code doesn't you know, have a factor in how well of an education you get. And we're going to pay teachers like they should be. And, uh, and, and scores are going to be on the rise. And that's, you know, of course, common um, things that you'll hear, you know, politicians say, and that's just kind of, you know, ho-hum at this point. Um, but they've laid out some pretty specific visions uh, with dollar figures attached to them um, going into this. So one I know that you and I have talked about quite a bit, Hunter, is universal pre-K. We can definitely dive into that a little bit because I think in the environment that we're going to be approaching here politically, that might be the most realistic and one of huge consequence mm-hmm. when that's had bipartisan support in the past. Student loan relief has also been part of the vision. Um, and then I would say the most bold and, uh, and dramatic kind of proposal was tripling uh, Title I funding uh, across the board, which um, especially for, you know, the kind of district I know that I teach in and probably many of your listeners, um, that's pretty night and day in terms of uh, what happens inside the walls of, of a lot of our districts across the country. So pretty bold. Uh, I think especially that last one, uh, hopes of tripling Title I funding might have dissipated as the election wound down and it became clear that Republicans uh, would either hold the Senate 
or keep it to a 50-50 tie. Um, for listeners that have kind of uh, very understandably tuned out since uh, election week, two weeks, month, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so kind of where we sit right now in the Senate is there are 50 Republican senators, there are 48 Democratic senators, uh, and there are two Senate elections uh, in Georgia, which, correct me if I'm wrong, Hunter, I think January 5th is election day in Georgia. I'd have um, to look. I'm not sure. Yeah. It's coming uh, up very quickly. Yes. Early January, those two last seats will be elected. Um, so we'll either have Senator Warnock uh, or Loeffler and then Senator uh, Ossoff or Purdue. Um, so four candidates in Georgia, two races. Uh, so if Democrats were able to win both of those, that would, of course, make a 50-50 in the Senate. Um, and then the tiebreaker there would be Vice President Harris. Uh, so that would give, you know, there's a there's a possibility out there where Democrats might be able to get both the House and the Senate and, of course, the, uh, the presidency, which is huge, huge for getting policy passed. Um, but I know uh, just kind of looking on the ground, you know, 50-50 means no margin for error on a lot of things. And, uh, and kind of uh, the reality of compromise in this country is that um, it's really hard to pass uh, something as bold as tripling Title I funding um, with the Senate that tight. So uh, that's kind of why maybe I, I would think that that's probably on the back burner for future elections, mm -hmm. um, but we'll have to see. Well, and you could even compare it to uh, stimulus checks. And the contention over a thousand dollars versus three hundred or six hundred, and all of the uh, dichotomy that you're getting from both parties, and and just on that issue alone, you start talking in the the you know amount of money that they're going to try and you know, like you said, they're tripling that or attempting to triple that amount of funding for Title One. I mean, that's just it's astronomical, and so you you could predictably assume that there's going to be some some contention there. Yeah, so that that is a, a tall ask. And I think to your point there, even when you have bipartisan support for something, my guess is if you did a, a survey of all the members of Congress right now and said, do you support giving some form of direct cash payments to all Americans right now? You know, with flying colors, I'm sure it would pass. But, you know, when the rubber meets the road, you know, it's been how many months since we've been able to actually get something passed. So the sausage gets made slowly, um, uh, <laughs> probably painfully slowly sometimes. Right. Even if you can get uh, you know both parties to agree on something, that's kind of that long, arduous process we probably see ahead of us in terms of educational reforms, mm -hmm. I think, in the next few months. So before we dive a little bit into the policy, I want to ask this question. Um, you know, Jill Biden is famously known for being an educator um, for her entire career. So I was wondering what you know, a first lady being a former teacher, does that have some weight in terms of education policy? Is that just something that gives general confidence in our education system for, you know, the public? Or is that more of just something that's ancillary? That's like something you say that's kind of nice and gives teachers, you know, that warm, fuzzy feeling inside? Or is there actual, um, you know, political capital to be gained there within the education sphere? Great question. Um, one that I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer uh, at all, but uh, but I do think it's interesting. I think people really resonate with certain life experiences of, of big, you know, political figures. Um, I'm thinking back to, uh, you know, even the amount of, of colleagues of mine I had, but uh, just 
general people in life that when President Trump was elected, a lot of people resonated with, well, he's a businessman. And so, you know, I can identify with X, Y, and Z, um, you know, with myself running a business, I can see how, you know, I can see myself, my experiences in that person. And I think it's the exact same scenario for educators with, uh, with Jill Biden in a lot of ways. Um, I think that uh, if my memory serves me right, she was a public school educator for over a decade. Right. Um, that's not a small portion of your life. Uh, it was pretty recent, I think, up until maybe even 2007, that was the, the work she was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, at least just from, from my brief life experiences, this stuff leaves a stamp on you. Um, and so uh, it, it is kind of nice to know that that perspective um, will be around the oval. Right. And I think a lot of people do feel that way. Absolutely agree with you. And, you know, our friend, dear friend, Malcolm Gladwell, That's right. <laughs> not friends with him. Personal uh, friend. Personal. <laughs> we text. It's fine. Uh, and as partner. You know, one of my favorite podcasts from his revisionist history podcast is the, the um, prime minister and the prof. And it's all about this idea of, well, who is actually up late at night talking to the people in power and who is affecting their decision-making. And so, I mean, having, you know, a former educator and teacher probably being the most important person in Joe, in Joe Biden's life. Um, you know, there could be some sway there. And obviously you can see with this platform, you know, that educators have had a huge impact on his life. And so you can see that reflected there. Um, so I, 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 I agree. I don't know if there will be, if there's really any answer to that question. I just think it definitely gives confidence in educators that to know, that there is someone with that expertise that has been through the trials of teaching that understands. Cause I think, especially after this year, there's been a bad taste left in our mouths with, you know, the work that Betsy DeVos has done. Um, just having the, and not necessarily, um, I'm not even talking policy. I'm just talking, having these people in, in power and positions of power that have no teaching background. Um, I mm-hmm. think that there has been a general, um, frustration there. And I think that turns a lot of educators off in terms of politics. And so it'll be a nice change of pace to have people who have been in the classroom and truly understand teaching um, that are speaking to, you know, those decisions and changes that they're trying to make um, at a higher level. So talking about one of those changes and decisions that they're trying to focus on is that universal pre-K. So Tristan, I know that you and I, like you said, we've talked about this at great length. Um, Maybe talk a little bit about the idea, the mission, the purpose behind universal pre-K, and then we can dive into maybe some of the benefits of it, some of the drawbacks, and the likelihood of its success. So I know that's a lot packed into one, so I'll just let you start wherever you like. Yeah, tall task as usual. Kind of task I expect from you. (laughs) Um, So universal pre-K, it's something I've been, I know I've been banging the drum for uh, on a long time, and in a lot of people in the education kind of policy spheres, and it makes sense. We'll get into kind of feasibility of it later, um, but it's a bipartisan idea. I think it's just something that naturally a lot of people understand that a lot of advantages with education, uh, they start really young. And so trying to build some kind of infrastructure, uh, some kind of formal process for making that a little more equitable, it's really important. Um, and so that of course uh, was really exciting when you see, you see that on the policy, um, especially given that a lot of people uh, kind of would throw their weight behind such an idea. Um, so kind of the term that a lot of people use um, that I think is really relevant here is universal preschool is a tide that raises all ships. Um, it's most significant uh, in terms of its benefits and disadvantaged and multilingual children who are unlikely, you know, to get that opportunity without it being universal. Um, 
it has also kind of long been touted as a primary vehicle uh, for rising test scores, falling grade retention, and the decline of special education loads. So the benefits are pretty, um, pretty wide, pretty diverse there. Uh, and, and I think a lot of the listeners will, will look at that list and say, man, that, uh, that would be nice in my district, right? And so in short, it kind of represents a nice little initial step into a, a potential revival of American public education. And mm-hmm. one that I think a lot of the viewers, our listeners rather, have long been awaiting. Right. And it's one of those things where you hear this all the time in education, you know, the younger that they can learn these things or be supported, the better. And, and I mean, at such a young age, kids are so impacted in terms of brain development, um, just in, in, in understanding how to do school too. Um, are they getting their basic needs met? Are they being set up for success for the rest of their educational career? We can't just think of, you know, oh, well, we'll just catch them at middle school. We'll catch them at high school. It has to start so much earlier. The moment that they start school, they have to be supported. And so I think there's a lot of philosophical support for this as well. Just are we doing right by our children at the very beginning of their schooling career? And a lot of people are don't have the support to do that or the means to do that. And so um, it would definitely... Uh, I hate saying um, like erase the gap, like achievement gap, learning gap, you know, gaps in general, but it definitely solves a lot of those problems. Like you said, I mean, it makes uh, the load on some of these other areas like special special education and multilingual groups. Like it takes some of the burden off of those, those programs and those supports, which are also major financial um, priorities. So I I think the benefits are, are clear. Um, what do you think the likelihood is of something like a universal pre-K bill passing under the Biden administration? Yeah, so details will matter a lot in what that bill is, right? Um, and we can go into kind of why those details matter a little bit in a second. But just in terms of some version of a UPK bill passing, I'd say actually the chances are pretty good, even in what by... Uh, by all metrics, looks like it will be a really, really partisanly divided government uh, for at least the next two years. Um, so I know one piece of evidence that you know people have looked for is there's not a ton of polling on UPK. Um, it's a pretty specific policy initiative that, again, um, not a lot of people are single issue voters for. Um, but a 2017 first five polls, uh, first five years fund poll found that 97% of Democrats support some form of universal uh, quality child education, 85% of independents and 82% of Republicans. Um, so there's a little bit of a partisan split there, um, but having all three kind of primary political stakeholders above that 80% threshold is a really good sign, um, really staggeringly high to have both, uh, both parties kind of agree, um, generally, at least at this point, um, or in 2017, a pretty revolutionary education idea, um, given that kind of the worldview of the two parties seems uh, is as apart as ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually think that there's a, a lot of goodwill there. Um, I think a lot of movement tends to happen at the beginning of a presidential term. Education is uh, maybe one of the less uh, politicized uh, issues right now, especially because I have to imagine that there's going to be a lot of movement and concern from uh, elected representatives that say, look, you know, we've just, we've missed a lot of opportunities to learn this last uh, year, maybe even two years by the time uh, we're, we're out the other end, right? Or at least a year and a half. 
Um, and so probably dramatic action needs to be taken to start to try to reconcile what that looks like. And I think UPK is going to have a pretty good appetite. Um, yeah. One man's opinion, one man's hope. Well, I'll make it too, because I feel the exact same way. I mean, and not just with universal pre-K, but COVID has just shone a light on all of the issues uh, with education and what schools are and are not prepared for. Um, one of those being supporting our youngsters. Like those kids have, you know, you have never seen more parent uh, upheaval this year uh, than ever before than this year. Uh, Cause they, they're struggling to figure out how to support their kid um, while also, you know, work online and do whatever they need to do. I mean, that's, so we're, we're finding now with this education system and with COVID happening um, such a need for it. And I think you and I talked about it a little bit too, just the general um, motivation of, you know, people in general right now is going to be a lot higher to make changes um, because of the situation that we're currently in. So aside from even just the polling, I think there's, like you said, a general appetite for it. Um, and we're going to have pretty cl a close race too. And so with, uh, with high polling like that, I think it definitely is a good sign. And like you were saying too, education is maybe one of the few, few non hyper polarized issues, I would say. I mean, it's certainly polarized to a certain degree. Um, but aside from everything else, this could definitely be one of those um, issues that Biden and his administration looks at and says, hey, this could be the first win under our belt as, as an administration um, because there are other hot button issues that are certainly of importance, but um, have a much higher degree of difficulty per se. And so education might be the first thing that they go to. I wouldn't be surprised. What do you think? Yeah. And, you know, from an optics lens, it's hard to say no to a, to a five-year-old child. Right. <laughs> I'd invite any, uh, any parent of a five-year-old to uh, testify to that. No yeah. kidding. I just think that, yeah, it's, it's a great kind of signal mover on uh, turning a new page and providing opportunities. Um, which is, I think, something that, that both parties have espoused interest in. Right. Um, well, in addition to universal pre-K, are there other, you know, major priorities in, in the education sphere that you think this administration will try to take on? And if so, I mean, you mentioned a few, but of those, what do you think is highest priority for this administration? You know, using optics, what do you think could be the most potentially successful aside from pre-K, universal pre-K? Um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think that there's a few that obviously have been kicked around. Um, there's a lot of prominent Democrats that have been, um, I would say, what's more outright than flirting? <laughs> Whatever the next step after flirting is, <laughs> with canceling uh, you know, student loan, or yeah. at least providing some kind of significant student loan relief. Um, we don't have the time uh, or the expertise on this podcast to go in the legality of using an executive order to cancel student debt. Um, that's probably something for the courts. Um, but depending on whether, you know, some of these things are able to be done via executive order, mm -hmm. well, I think dramatically change how feasible they are. But in general, I know that student loan uh, relief is something that has been uh, discussed. Uh, I think ad nauseum, I can say. Yeah. You can hear a lot about it. Right. We also talk a lot about higher ed access. Um, so at last I heard the Biden administration's interest was in a free public two-year college. Um, so that's a, you know, a lot of people that want to see free four-year college would say it's not so ambitious. 
Um, I would say that that is incredibly ambitious and, um, and that there is uh, an enormous amount of utility that could be done in two years of uh, community college, mm-hmm. public community college that's funded. Um, so I think that that'll be something that, that gets a pretty hard look in these next couple of years. But yeah, as we've, as we've, as we've said, um, it's going to be a uphill battle, not only just to get anything passed, but certainly anything that is construed as partisan, um, given how, how tight each side uh, figures to cling uh, as we go into uncertain times. So UPK would probably be my best bet, but I think uh, educators will see a whole host of issues that uh, could potentially impact their classroom on the docket, both at their state level and of course at the federal level. Right. And some of it too would certainly depend on who he ultimately selects for his um, secretary of education. And I don't think there's been a nominee put forth yet. I think there's been some names tossed around that I don't have off the top of my head, um, which is kind of concerning. Uh, Cause <laughs> I mean, that's the person too, that has a lot of way in, especially on that student loan issue um, and funding in general, but you know, that'll be an interesting uh, dynamic that kind of plays out here within the next couple months of who are the nominees that he puts forth uh, for that position and ultimately what that person chooses to do because um, they do have a lot of role in that general sphere of um, of student loans particularly you know they could choose to freeze those and and play around with those as they see fit but um, have you heard anything about that or have any um, inklings on secretary of ed yeah I the name lists that I always see I'm like, it's like the uh, political version of gossip, right? <laughs> uh, but the name list I've seen have always probably too long to, to cover in a post like this. Um, maybe of more relevance is just that, you know, Biden has promised to put a public educator in yeah. that role. So just as we kind of discussed with Jill Biden, I think that that is, uh, is a move that definitely gives confidence. It's just kind of refreshing to know that whoever does sit in that seat next will have sat in, in your seat, so to speak, at some yeah. point in their life. Um, and those experiences can be really valuable for high level decision making, I think. Absolutely. And I think just moving forward, seeing, you know, the administration to start to put their cabinet together um, and start seeing them make decisions. I think we just have to moderate expectations a little bit because, um, yes, we have these this uh, comprehensive set of goals that are lofty for education that Biden has put forward himself. But we also have to balance that with what he's really trying to do as well, which is unite. And a lot of uniting also equals compromise and not necessarily going full-fledged on some of these issues. So I'm ready to temper expectations. Um, I I hope that the general public is ready to temper expectations as well. Um, Just because I, you know, know, that's what got him elected or helped get him elected is just that this idea to unite both sides. And so I don't expect him to swing fully one way you know, if we're using student loans as an example, I would never expect him to cancel all student loans. I just don't think that that's a possibility for him, but there are certainly moderate expectations of something being done. So we'll see what happens. It's all coming together piece by piece. Um, You know, if we could predict it, we'd be making a lot of money, (laughs) but no one can predict this kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Give me those consulting fees. Uh, But Tristan, I appreciate your time. Your insight is always super helpful. Um, Politics is something that I'm still trying to learn so much about, and you have taught me um, more than I could ever learn uh, from anyone else. So I appreciate it. Oh, no, you need a a new teacher, better teacher. (laughs) Well, I appreciate it. It's been a treat. It's been a treat, as always. Absolutely. Thank you for, for everything. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Schools of Thought, a podcast by Ed Essentials. Original music by Patrick Cunningham. Links to connect with us are in the show notes. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast because it really helps us out. Always bring your best, and we'll see you next time on Schools of Thought.